In the sixth grade, I became a mean girl. It all started one day when a dark-haired tomboy named Susan, who I'd been best friends with in kindergarten but lost touch with, switched from public school to my Catholic grammar school. The thing was, in the meantime, I'd made another best friend, a golden-haired girl named Peggy. The three of us became the Musketeers, eating lunch together and playing dodgeball in our plaid uniforms on the school playground. Peggy and Susan both counted me as their best friend, and I can't lie, I loved the attention. And then, the incident in the bathroom happened. A few months into the year, I noticed Susan and Peggy whispering together and exchanging glances when I joined them. You and Peggy seem pretty chummy, I said to Susan one day. Well, you know Peggy talks bad about you when we're alone, she told me. And that's when I hatched my plan. Our sixth grade classroom is at the end of a long hallway on the top floor of St. Augustine School. It smelled of floor wax and disinfectant. We were lucky that year to have Sister Joan, one of the young pretty nuns who went by her first name, because she wasn't all that strict. She actually let the kids go to the bathroom when they needed to, which was very lenient by most nun standards. And so one day, during social studies, I excused myself to go to the bathroom, entered a stall, and stood up on the toilet seat to wait. Sure enough, according to the plan I'd hatched with Susan, she and Peggy arrived and were chatting in the sink area outside my stall. I heard Susan mention my name, inviting Peggy to dish about something I'd said or done, I can't remember what, and snap. Peggy fell into my trap, happily talking about me behind my back. That was my cue. I swung open the door and looked down at Peggy's face, turning bright red as she realized what was happening. Oh, really, Peggy? She looked up at me in horror. Ugh, did I really do that? Can you imagine the planning that went into pulling that off? And here's the worst part. When Peggy turned to flee from the bathroom, I grabbed her wrist to make her stay and face me. I wanted the moment to linger. I cringe at that memory. It's nagged at me for years because I always wonder, why would I gang up with one friend to hurt another? And does that girl in the bathroom have anything to do with the woman I am now? You're listening to Midway, a show about midlife transitions, starting with my own. I'm Barbara Paulson. And this is episode five. So if this is the first Midway you've heard, you might want to go back and listen from the beginning because I'm telling the story in real time. And today's show is about friendships, why they're so important to the person you are and why they can be so hard to navigate, so hard to keep going. A little over a year ago, on my birthday, my closest friend Pam called me to tell me she was planning to move from our home in D.C. back to California, where we'd met 20 years ago. I tried to be happy for her. I was happy for her. And given everything going on in her life, I knew it was the right decision. But I also knew it was going to suck for me. To understand my predicament, we have to back up a bit. When I was in my 30s, by some mix of luck and accident, I fell in love with a whole group of people in the San Francisco Bay Area. We were at that stage of life when we'd all found partners and jobs and were having kids. Most of us were far from family, so we celebrated birthdays and holidays and baby showers together. We raised our kids together. Don't get me wrong, I love my family, but these friends, well, they became my tribe. And because we were living in that magical place known as California, on weekends, we played at Muir Beach and hiked on Mount Tam. We spent nights at each other's houses and cooked pasta and grilled salmon. And we danced and drank wine deep into the night while our kids slept on heaps of coats on the beds. 
How's the tomatoes? And then, this being America, the tribe split apart. Jobs pulled us in different directions, to D.C., Alabama, New York. One by one, each family moved away, while just one family remained in California. For the first time, we each became the dreaded nuclear family. It was sad. But hey, that's not the end of the story. Of course it's not. Because, you know, the internet, jet planes, email, long-distance phone calls. Our kids don't even remember when long-distance phone calls used to be super expensive. What? And vacations. Every year without fail, we take turns planning trips where we all get together at some amazing place. This is like a reality TV show. We've been to Barcelona, Quebec, Mexico, Corsica, Tuscany, Croatia. It's called The Vacationers. But of course it's not the same as when we all lived in one place. I was lucky, though, because Pam was a member of that tribe. And so when we both ended up living in D.C., we got to remain everyday friends. The kind who gossip together, dance together, talk politics and books and sex and hair together. <laughs> Pam has known me so long. She gets me. Uh, so Jeff, good morning. We went for long walks uh, every week and jokingly called yeah, each other BFFs. So when Pam moved to San Francisco last April, it created a hole in my life. One that's taken me by surprise in its intensity. And it's made me think a lot about the nature of friendship and how little attention most of us pay to its mysteries. Everyone agrees friendships are important, but it's the relationship we pay the least attention to. We know what's expected of us by our romantic partners, mothers, fathers, even bosses and work colleagues. But our friendships? They're more fluid and more vulnerable. They're so forgiving of lapses that lapses can become chasms. I mean, no one teaches you about friendship, except maybe Mr. Rogers. You know what it means, a friend? It means that I know that person. And I let's face it, he wasn't a lot looks, of help. And I like to be with them. I got my early ideas about friendship from Beverly Cleary novels, and later from I Love Lucy. A handful of social scientists have spent their careers studying friendship. But you don't need them to tell you that throughout our lives, friendships follow a familiar pattern. In childhood and even into high school, you basically hang out with whoever's nearby or convenient. They live on your block, or you sit behind them in social studies, or you met them on the first day of kindergarten. Then in college and into your 20s, you gravitate to people you actually have things in common with. Plus, you have enough time to cement your friendships with lots of hangout time. College and the years immediately after is a window of opportunity for friendship because it offers the three things psychologists say you need to make close friends. One, proximity. Two, repeated and unplanned interactions. And three, a setting that encourages people to let down their guard and confide in each other. In other words, friends who are nearby, who you meet on the fly, and who are willing to pry. Over time, though, the friendship window starts to close. And with each passing decade, experts say we make fewer and fewer new friends. We move around, get busy with our jobs and family, and close friendships start to fade. It can sneak up without us even noticing, disguised by the social buzz we get from colleagues at work. And then, midway through your life, something happens. You quit your job, or your kid gets ready to leave for college or your closest friend packs up and moves, or, in my case, all three in quick succession. But one day, you wake up, and no matter how many friends you have on Facebook, no matter how happy you are in your marriage, you feel a little lonely, and you realize you've neglected to nurture the circle of friends you've dreamed about. 
At least that's what happened to me. And so this show is the story of my slightly embarrassing quest to create a close-knit group of friends, to find out if the experts on friendship might be wrong, and if I can buck the trend of a shrinking social circle at midlife. But I've come to see that it's also a larger story about whether it's really possible to nurture deep friendships in our job-hopping, city-switching, Facebook-liking age. So let's get started. And I begin my quest with a question. Is there an ideal number of friends? And it turns out there is. It's called Dunbar's Number, named after the fellow who first discovered it. I'm Robin Dunbar, and I'm professor of evolutionary psychology at the University of Oxford. Yeah, well, that's pretty cool to have a number named after you. It's very cool to have a number named after you, uh, but it's a bit worrying, actually. Almost all the people who've got numbers named after them are actually dead. <laughs> I called up Professor Dunbar to help me figure out what to do now that my friend Pam has moved away. My closest friend just moved across the country, and it's made me just so aware of the fact that I really don't have the kind of longevity with other friends in my life. And so I'm just really kind of struggling with trying to figure out whether to invest more time in reconnecting with people who've known me for a long time or whether to try and make new friends locally because of that proximity issue. Professor Dunbar had some advice I didn't want to hear. But before we get into that, I want to explain more about Dunbar's number. So what is the number? About 150. 150? That's right. 150 is the limit on the number of meaningful relationships Professor Dunbar says the average person can maintain at any one time. These are the people you feel an obligation to, the people you trust, the people you know would help you out if you asked them. 150 seems like a lot to me. But Professor Dunbar says your social network of 150 is actually broken down into smaller groups. Intimate friends. That's the three to five people you're closest with. Best friends. A circle of about 15. Good friends. The 50 people you'd invite to a party. It's taken Dunbar his whole career to tease out the particulars of his discovery. But it all started, by accident, back when he was studying the grooming behavior of primates. He was trying to figure out why monkeys and apes spend so much time grooming each other. And he decided to test an idea. To see whether there was a correlation between the amount of time a species spends grooming and the size of its social group, and there was. Next, Dunbar decided to match up the size of the social group with the size of the primates' brains. So I dug out data on brain size in monkeys and apes. Specifically, the neocortex. Correlated that with group size, and sure enough, it's a very nice relationship. And why would that be? They need a big computer to manage all these relationships. Dunbar wondered whether this link between the size of the brain and the size of the social network might hold true for humans, too. So he did the math. When you plug human brain sizes into this equation, and voila, what you get out is a predicted group size of about 150 individuals. A number that struck Dunbar is far too small given that actually humans can live in very, very large cities. So I set about looking for evidence that this might be a kind of natural grouping size. So he looked at all kinds of human communities. Hunter-gatherer societies. Armies in the Roman Empire. Church congregations. The Bushmen of Southern Africa. The size of modern armies. Native American tribes. The Amish and the Hutterite. And they were all groups of about 150. You know, once you realize that maybe this group of 150 does have some reality, you start to, to see it all over the place, in fact. 
it jumps out at you. But in recent decades, as your roster of Facebook friends no doubt can attest, we've seen a huge change in our social networks. Yeah, I think um, something really major has happened really in our social lives since about the 1950s. We've become much, much more mobile. You end up with little pockets of friends who don't know each other, scattered around the world, following your track through life, really. It's a very fragmented network. Does Dunbar's number hold up in the age of social media, would you say? Indeed, Dunbar's number does hold up in social media. That's because even if you have 700 Facebook friends, all from different places you've lived and jobs you've had, Studies show you likely only interact with between 100 and 200 of them on a regular basis. Friendships are very fragile in the sense that if you don't keep investing in them uh, at a very specific rate, the quality of that friendship will decline, but it will decline very quickly within a matter of months. And so a friend you had great chemistry with and shared secrets and dinner parties with at some point in your life, if you haven't spoken to them in years... They will sort of bounce down through the layers of your network until if you, know, if you leave it long enough, they will sort of bounce over the edge of your personal uh, friendship network and, and just become an acquaintance, let's say, somebody you once knew. My generation is familiar with this bouncing effect because we got caught between two societal shifts. We were the first to be highly mobile. These days, the average American moves 11 times. I've already moved nine times. But we did all that moving pre-Facebook pre-email even. When I moved from New York to Texas in high school, I left my friends behind. When I went off to college and with each move after, I lost touch with more and more people. Even a dear friend became somebody you once knew. If too many years go by, at that point, you've drifted so far apart, it is actually quite difficult to reconnect in that more intimate way. But there is hope. Professor Dunbar says one category of friends are an exception. Uh, and that is... Yep, you guessed it. Friendships you build in a particular window in life. The friends you made during your teens and 20s. Which is around the college period. Friends you make during this period often can be revived, even after losing touch. That's a period when your life is very intense, emotionally full of turmoil. You're doing lots of very intense social activities, like a lot of singing and dancing and clubbing and all the rest of it. And exhibit A for this kind of reconnection? is the movie The Big Chill. I feel like I was at my best when I was with you people. Not me. Getting with you people is the best thing ever happened to me. Glenn Close and Kevin Klein starred in this 1983 film. I mean, how much sex, fun, friendship can one man take? It romanticized the idea that a tight circle of friends can come back together after 15 years, and the chemistry still works. In a cold world... Wise up, folks. We're all alone out there. You still need your friends to keep you warm. People you can let your hair down with. I don't know what people think about me. Admit your insecurities. You don't have that problem here. You know I don't like you. I've always been someone who likes to look forward. Not yearn for the past. I used to guard against nostalgia, thinking that Stephen Stills had it right in his song, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. Don't let the past remind us of what we are Because nostalgia can seem like an indictment of your current life. Social scientists find that people at transition points are more likely to engage in nostalgia. When you're feeling fearful of the future, it can be an escape to think back to happier times. But maybe nostalgia can also be a way to create a sense of continuity in your life. With Pam gone, 
Most of my friends in DC have known me for only a few years. I tell Professor Dunbar, there's part of me that yearns for friends who know not just who I am now, but who I was before. I've been thinking about reaching out to some of the people that I lost touch with to just like talk to them and actually have a conversation. I mean, I'm very struck by the extent to which you can reconnect with that age group, and it sort of works. So with Professor Dunbar's blessing, I decide to create my own big chill moment by reconnecting one by one with friends I've left behind. So first I phoned Susan, my best friend from grammar through high school. So we met in kindergarten, right? I believe so, yeah. And I Skyped Claire, the first friend I made when I moved to Houston in sophomore year of high school. Hello, can you hear me? And finally I get in touch with Jamie, my best friend all through college and into my early 20s. But you're not on Facebook. No, I'm not. So circling back, it was easy to find my childhood friend Susan. We'd been Facebook friends for years. But even though I knew she lived in Florida and I got to see pictures of her husband and kids, I had no idea what had happened to her. In the decades since I moved from our hometown of Ossining, New York, to Houston, Texas at the age of 15, I hadn't talked to her once. Can you hear me? We reminisce about all the time we spent playing in the woods behind my house. Do you remember that we used to kind of pretend that we were Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that hysterical? Yep. Because it was like very daring for us right, to right. be playing with matches and creating a fire in the woods. Do you remember going up to Mary Noel and picking apples? We were yep. so adventuresome. Like Tom and Huck. Yeah, <laughs> just like Tom and Huck. Yep. I mean, I tell so many people about that. In the summertime, go out and don't come back until it's dinner time. They were good memories, I tell you. But they weren't all good memories. Of course, I asked Susan about that fateful afternoon in the bathroom at St. Augustine's. So I was friends with Peggy Greider, and there was one time, well, I think you might have told me that sometimes Peggy would, like, talk bad about me. I wasn't sure she'd remember. We had this plan where we were going to trap Peggy into talking bad about me behind my back, and I went into the bathroom. And as I told her the story... I started to wonder if I'd made it up or if it had happened with some other friend, not her. On top of the toilet, and you and Peggy came in, and you got Peggy to, like, start talking about me or something. And then I swung the door open, and I said, oh, really, Peggy? And she just was mortified, like I had trapped her in that way. Do you remember that? I do now that you tell the story, but I, I didn't, I haven't thought about that in forever. No, I, I, I do remember it because I, I, <laughs> I remember you being up on the toilet kind of straddling it, standing on it. That oh, is it's such funny. a mean girl thing to do. Yes, no? it was. And I remember, I remember that she, she and I would like vie for your attention. Yeah, I yep. think I kind of liked that, you know. Yeah, 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 I do remember that. And what I really remember, too, is that she wanted to run away. Uh-huh. And I, I grabbed onto her wrist because I kind of wanted to just make her face up to this betrayal. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, I feel like I need to find her and, and ask for her forgiveness. Or and if you're out there, Peggy, please get in touch. Great friends with her. Peggy and I drifted apart uh-huh. after that. Um, you basically ruined our friendship is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and I felt she ruined our friendship because I knew you first. It was harder to find my friend Jamie because she isn't on Facebook and she changed her name when she got married. Last I knew, she was living in Chicago, but I had no idea how to contact her. 
I've been looking for you for the longest time. And then one day I got a notice from LinkedIn that she'd gotten a new job. You know what, Barbara? We've been connected on LinkedIn for years. For years? Yeah. (laughs) I wrote you on LinkedIn and said, oh, so happy to connect. And you never responded. It takes only a few minutes before the memories of our adventures come flooding back. We hitchhiked out there. Like a trip we took to California. Do you remember our encounter with the crazy man with the knife in the park? We had camped out and then the sprinkler system went off. Yeah, I had and gotten that part, guys. I had stored my money in my bra. Yes, and I when we that when now. we ran away from the sprinkler, I lost my money. Wow, and, I had to that And we meet that guy, and then he told us that he was an undercover police officer with all the scars. Scars. <laughs> he, all, he said, "Oh, here's the proof that I'm an undercover police officer. I have all these knife wounds." Yeah, I'd say these are the kinds of intense experiences Dunbar was talking about. And then we got into a car with a man who had a gun on the seat of of the front seat of the car. Do you remember that? And he told us we looked fresh. Sometimes I cannot believe we survived our 20s. I know. (laughs) (laughs) We had such wild times. Even though we haven't talked in over a decade, it's like we click back into place. Hearing your voice, you just sound exactly the same, too. Like your voice is the same, totally the same. Your voice and is the same, too. Yeah. Isn't that wild? So the strange thing is, when I contact my high school friend Claire, I don't recognize her voice. Hello, can you hear me? Hi! And what I learned during our conversation makes me rethink the whole reason I'm reaching back into my past. So let me tell you Claire's story. Claire came into my life at an especially difficult time when I just moved from New York to Houston and felt pretty much like an alien. And I met you on the bus and I just immediately was just like, someone who understands how I feel. I remember Claire as magnetic, a girl who attracted everyone in her orbit. She seemed at home in her own skin. So it's surprising to hear how she views her younger self. Yeah, because yeah. you, did, you did always seem like you were really happy. But in you're saying you didn't really feel that way? No, I had no real sense of myself. She says she didn't really know who she was until much later in life. It took me into my 40s to really get the sense of who I am, what works for me in life. And that's when she fell in love with a man named Paul. They'd both been in marriages that hadn't worked out. But this time, they knew it was right. And so, about 10 years ago, Claire and Paul were making plans to get married in Italy. When everything fell apart, she just started collapsing on the floor. We just hit the ground for no reason. It turned out Claire had two malformed capillaries in her head, probably since birth, and one of them was bleeding in her brain. Paul took Claire to the emergency room, and she was transported by helicopter to a Phoenix hospital for brain surgery. Claire's family was incredibly frightened. I mean, who knew after I had the surgery if I would have any memories? You know how scared that had to be. The surgery saved her life, but she came out of the hospital far worse than she went in. I came home in a wheelchair and couldn't really talk, so I had a hell of a long way to get back to just being able to function. I gave Paul an out. I said, You know, you don't have to marry me. You know, I totally set you free. I'm not who you thought you were marrying. She was no longer the same Claire that Paul had fallen in love with. 
you actually couldn't speak after the surgery? Right. I had to go to speech therapy. I just really slurred a lot. I could not enunciate. She had lost sensation in her left hand. My left hand would like kind of wander and I wouldn't really know. It was very disconnected. So when Claire offered to let Paul off the hook to not get married? He felt like he was seeing the essence of me. All my filters were stripped away. After seeing me in the hospital and going through that with me, he was like, oh my God, I want to marry this girl. And so a year after their original wedding date, Paul did marry this girl, this new Claire. I'm really glad that we weren't married prior to this because I want to know he married me for how I am now, not how I was, because I'm not how I was. Ten years after surgery, the left side of Claire's body has not recovered completely. I have a tremor in that left hand, and my left foot has kind of contracted, so my toes are like bent up. Many of her long-term memories are intact, but many are gone. Some of my memories are only in my head because I've been told. She doesn't remember much about our time together in high school. If you have any memories you'd love to share, I'd love to hear them. Sometimes she gets frustrated that she isn't back to her old self. You know, we all thought I would recover 100%, and I'm probably not going to recover 100%. But she tries to tell herself how lucky she is. Some part of me would love to be able to dance and hike and jump and run, but, you know, it really... When I go back to if I think it's a choice between being here and not being here, I'll be here. When I talk to Claire, there's no rush of memories to connect us like there was with Susan and Jamie. Yet I feel so much affection for the woman on the other end of this line. This Claire is a different person from the one I knew, but she's also a different person from the one she was before brain surgery. Uh, even now, it's funny because I yeah. definitely notice a difference in your voice. And you know how, like, when you haven't talked to somebody in a very long time and then you talk to them and you're like, oh, my God, like, I recognize their voice, you know, so right, much. Right, right. And, and with you, I didn't have that feeling. Claire isn't the only one who's different today from the person she was. We all are. In contacting friends from my teens and 20s, I'd wanted to reconnect with people who knew the real me, to rediscover my essential self. But of course, our essential selves are always evolving, depending on the context in which you find yourself, in which you put yourself. The other day, I was listening to an NPR podcast called Invisibilia while riding my bike to the local bookstore, and I just had to stop to record the thoughts it was stirring up in me. So I used the recorder in my iPhone tucked into my jog bra. And now... Most of the friends I have have known me a relatively short time, and sometimes I feel like they don't know the real me. The podcast was getting at the question, do you have an essential personality that stays with you your whole life? Or is your personality sort of a function or an outgrowth of the situation in which you find yourself. And this was just so relevant to what I was hoping for in reconnecting with my friends. The idea that these people who knew me when I was young, the fact that I think that they might know something about who I am that's more essential than people who know me now, is that true or is that just some 
fiction. And or, that's the real question I need to answer. And, and maybe, maybe they would have known me better if they had known me all this time, but the fact that we have grown apart, the fact that we are no longer in each other's lives. And that's when it kind of hit me. They don't have any better sense of me than, than someone who just met me for the first time. And as much as I'm always feeling like I'm still waiting to grow up, I've grown up. I have. It's been so much fun to reconnect with these old friends. It's helped me remember that girl who craved adventure, and I still am that girl. And even that mean girl in the school bathroom, I'm not proud of her, but yeah, that girl is part of me too. And I can even feel a bit of sympathy for her because I see now that I was hurt and feeling shut out by Susan and Peggy's friendship. But I've grown to be a middle-aged woman now, and these old friends don't know the me I've become which is very much a result of my current context, of the experiences and people of my life here in DC. And that brings me back to Professor Dunbar, because remember, his original research was on the grooming habits of primates, and it has persuaded him that physical closeness is essential to emotional closeness. To invoke another Stephen Stills song, you do tend to love the ones you're with. At the end of the day, there seems to be nothing quite like meeting somebody in the flesh, being able to see the whites of their eyes for creating a sense of intimacy in the relationship. The other forms of uh, communication, including the telephone, uh, Facebook, um, all the social media, texting, uh, you feel much less satisfied with the quality of an interaction that you have with a friend. And of course we all know that. No one's fooled by the fact that the people we connect with on Facebook are called friends. Facebook is great for keeping tabs on long-lost friends. But when you laugh at a video someone posted on Facebook, you laugh alone in the glow of the screen illuminating your dark house. I mean, sometimes when I'm on Facebook and I'm liking things, I don't know, like sometimes I end up feeling even more lonely. <laughs> I, I, I can see that. Actually. And that's the irony, isn't it? The more social our media gets, the more lonely we can feel. The yearning I've felt since Pam left, the yearning I think so many of us feel, it's not even that I want a group of friends to have parties with, although I do want that. It's that I want to be known. I want friends who get me. And there's only one way for that to happen. To let people see you as you really are with all your self-doubt and your weird sense of humor and your too loud laugh, you have to risk letting people see your vulnerabilities. Being midway through my life gives me this new vantage point because I realize more tangibly than ever that this journey I'm on does have an end. And I want good company on the path. With Miro heading off to college, I'll have more time to play. So I want some playmates. It's late June, and Mira was finally graduating from high school. It all seems surreal as the graduates parade up for their diplomas, some dancing across the stage. A few days earlier, a group of us hosted a graduation party for Miro and a bunch of his closest friends. A group of women had met at least four times to plan the party. I'm sort of in love with 
love with the idea of doing penance. Me too. And where do like, we get those for, for the colleges? Yeah, for yeah. the we meet to plan the menu, the decorations, the guest list. And do we have the invite list now that I'm And we talk about how much yeah, we'll miss them when they leave. There's Miro. Without even trying, I've become friends with this group of women, going through the same rite of passage I am. A month later, at a 4th of July picnic at Rock Creek Park in D.C., She's a really good She's a the same group of parents gather to sing songs and grill chicken and drink beer. And we beam at our group of 18-year-olds chatting together in a circle. I look around at the group of people eating off of paper plates under the trees, and I realize this is my community now, or at least one of them. No, they don't know I once pretended to be Tom Sawyer in the creek behind my house. They don't know the story of how Tio and I met or remember when Miro was born. But does that mean they don't really know me? When I awkwardly interviewed some of my DC friends the other day, what I'm wanting to sort of ask you about- I was reassured. Like you really don't know a whole lot about my personal history. It's sort of a weird question, but like, how would you describe my personality? You have a personality that embraces the world. And I think that it's, and it's infectious. Warm, fun. How would I describe your personality? You're just sort of a free spirit. Adventurous. This is going to ruin our friendship, Barbara. You see the the glimmer in everything. Great sense of humor. Thoughtful, funny. You should throw in a few <laughs> nasty ones. You're always energized. Risk taker. Soulmate. Comfortable with and nourished by the limelight. Do you think that's true? I think you well, like... Well, why am I doing Ooh. this podcast? <laughs> um, I can see. also tell you about your personality after this. That's only fair. <laughs> Would you be surprised to learn that I was arrested for skinny dipping in a reservoir in East Texas? No, not at all. Not at all. No. <laughs> Maybe they do get me. Were you? Yes, I was. <laughs> And now that I've learned so much about the science of friendship, thank you, Professor Dunbar, it's pretty clear what has happened. I believe my experience shows that our 20s aren't the only time in life when we're capable of making close friendships. It's possible to make friends anytime you are willing to hang out and let your hair down with people. And it turns out that at midlife, people going through transitions, becoming empty nesters, looking for a new sense of purpose in their lives, that's exactly the kind of emotional turmoil that brings people together. I've met a group of people who are fulfilling the three conditions for forming close friendships. We're all nearby, we meet on the fly, and at least some of us are willing to pry. And as for my dear friend Pam, and trying to keep our long distance relationship alive, when I asked Professor Dunbar about this, he was naturally a little hesitant to give me personal advice but it's clear where he stands. He says it's much more common for women to say they have a best friend. Somebody who's typically referred to as a BFF or a best friend forever. And I don't know why, but it's just weird to hear a British academic use the term BFFs without air quotes. Girls will make a big effort to try and keep that relationship going over distances. Like me and Pam. And you sometimes wonder whether that's such a good idea because a virtual shoulder to cry on a couple of hundred miles away is not the same thing as a real shoulder to cry on there in front of you in the room. So are you basically saying I should move on? <laughs> no, it, de it depends. I mean, in a generality, the answer, I suppose, is yes. But here's why I reject that generality. 
While I agree with Professor Dunbar that keeping in touch with Pam on Facebook or by texting would result in that dreaded bounce. Down to where we'd just be two people who used to know each other. Pam and I have a secret weapon. Not just our girlfriend love. It's this technology called the phone. It's become vastly underutilized in recent years, supplanted by email, texting, messaging. But here's what a phone call offers that social media can. Hello? The human voice. If you have listened to this podcast all the way to the end, and if you have, can I just say thank you so much? It's because we formed a connection through the sound of my voice. It's that intimacy that voice creates that made me want to start this show. And that's why I know that Pam and I are going to be okay. So, you know, I'm working on this podcast episode that you figure prominently in. Because every week, we're still taking walks together. Okay, thank you, honey. You made me feel better. On the phone. (laughs) Okay, honey, well, I love you so much. And we are going to talk again next week. Until the next time. This episode of Midway was produced by me, Barbara Paulson. I had research and editing help from my amazing intern, Sarah Hodgkins, who has become a friend to me while we worked on this show. I'd also like to thank Susan Luciano, Jamie West, Claire Daniels, Janet Fershine, Patty Allman, Victoria Dawson, and all the parents of Miro's Friends Group, because now you're my friends too. And my dear friend, Pam Riley, who was the inspiration for this episode. This is the fifth episode of the first season of Midway, but I'm already planning the second season, and the stories I want to tell are not just my stories. I want to tell yours too. So please email me about a transition in your own life at midwaypodcast at gmail.com. And if you are listening to this and wondering how you can help me keep this going, please subscribe to Midway for free on iTunes and leave a review. It really can help me. Please look for the next episode of Midway in September when Tio and I have dropped Miro off at college and the moment I've been dreading finally arrives. I'm Barbara Paulson. Thanks so much for listening.